Erev Tov. Tonight I want to talk about Chassidut. You're all familiar, at least uh, in some general sense, I think, with Chassidut. I know you have a very uh, polymorphous uh, Chabad network here in um, Orange County. Someone told me, uh, very, I don't know, 13, 14, some very large number of Hasidic uh, centers. To understand Hasidism, however, historically, we have to go back to what we were discussing in our last lecture. We talked about Shabtai Tzvi and the lecture before that, and we talked about Luriana Kabbalah. Hasidism is the third leg of the stool, you might say, the third element in the dialectic that begins with Luriana Kabbalah and then is perverted by Sabbateanism. And now Hasidism, in a broad sense, is the antidote to Sabbateanism in the broad sense. It's more than that, but in some basic way, if you remember what we said about how Sabbateanism corrupts from the inside, then you will understand that there needs to be some kind of antidote from the inside, some kind of response. And you remember, I hope, that the kinds of things that Sabbateanism perverted were absolutely fundamental aspects of Jewish life, not peripheral. They fund The Sabbateans perverted Luriana Kabbalah to justify his conversion to Islam and the whole phenomenon of the Dunma. They were antinomian, that is to say they violated the law. <clears throat> and of course, when you challenge rabbinic authority and you challenge Torah, you absolutely fundamentally assault uh, the tradition. Thirdly, they assaulted Messianism by the perverse Messianism of a, uh, what should I say, a lascivious and a perverse Messiah. And of course, they polluted the idea of a charismatic leader, a leader who has special gifts, special kind of authority. Now, all of this is pretty essential. That means that the Jewish community at the beginning of the 18th century was really reeling. And then, of course, as you know from our conversation at the end of the last uh, class, this perversion continued into the 18th century when Jacob Frank came forward and said that he was the reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi, and he then converted to Catholicism, and he also carried on in all kinds of uh, incorrect, sexually uh, bizarre ways. Into this crisis stepped uh, unintentionally, I would say. That is, it wasn't a planned kind of uh, action where someone sat down and said, how are we going to meet this crisis? But rather a kind of intuitive response came forward, first by one individual whose name was Rabbi Israel Ben Eliezer, uh, the Baal Shem Tov, whose abbreviation is the Bresh, that's how we know him, and by the disciples that he brought to him, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, the best was born around 1700. He, by tradition, there's no reason to doubt the tradition, he became an orphan as a young boy. His father died, and he was uh, put really on the, what should I say, the welfare of the community. Uh, he didn't seem to be a very good student. He wasn't uh, someone who they immediately identified to be a Talmud Chacham. And as a boy, therefore, he had a minimum Jewish education. And then he went to work as a behelfer. Behelfer, those uh, of you know, Yiddish know, that was a 
like we have today, a kindergarten aid, a teacher's aid in kindergarten. Obviously not a very sophisticated job to be a teacher's aid for kindergarten children. And the stories are told that when he would pick the children up and take them to the school, the parents thought he was very flaky. He would sing and he would play with animals and he would do all kinds of things that were rather unusual. So he didn't have much future in Jewish education. And uh, he went off instead, and a uh, strange story, I won't go into detail, he married the sister of a well-known sage, but she had been married already, so her value, I would assume, in the marriage market had declined. And uh, he married her, and they went off to open an inn in the Carpathian Mountains to be innkeepers. And it was very common in Eastern Europe, the wife did most of the innkeeping, and he did other things. The tradition is that he went off to mine clay in the mountains. He would cut clay into bricks and harden them and then sell the bricks. And also, as a, someone who was able to make his own schedule as a brick cutter, he did strange meditations, mystical things in the mountains, and he did all the traditional ascetic, meditational, mystical kinds of devotions. At 36, according to the Hasidic tradition, a voice came from heaven and said, it's time for you to reveal your truth to the world. And he stopped being an innkeeper and stopped living this ascetic life in the Carpathian Mountains. And he became a wandering wonder worker. The term Baal Shem Tov means Baal means master, Shem means good, and to Shem means name, and Tov means good. Baal Shem Tov does not mean, however, someone who has a good reputation. Baal Shem Tov, a master of a good name. Right? We always say, according to Pirkei Avot, Jewish tradition, you should have a good name, a Shem Tov. But here the Shem Tov means the name of God. And a Baal Shem Tov, a master of the good name, means someone who knows to use the name of God for magical and meditational uh, practices. There are all kinds of stories about the Besht as a wonder worker. I stress that because some of you may know the Baal Shem Tov and Hasidism only through the Buber stories. How many of you know Martin Buber's Hasidic tales? Well, a few of you, anyway. And most people come to the Baal Shem Tov through the Buber mices. But the fact is that, <laughs> that you, should, you should be very cautious because Buber's Baal Shem Tov is not authentic. The authentic Baal Shem Tov is a wonder worker, a magician, a person who's doing all kinds of magic. I read you just one uh, example. When Rav Isaac of Drahovich heard the remarkable powers of the Baal Shem Tov's amulets, it occurred to him that this was certainly accomplished by means of the sacred names written in them. Shem Tov, the secret names, the names of God. So he decreed, quote, because of the improper use of the name of God, the power of the amulets must pass away. And that indeed is what happened. The talismans issued by the Baal Shem Tov were now unavailing, having lost their special potency. When the Baal Shem finally realized that his amulets were no longer providing any benefit, he sought the reason. It was eventually revealed to him that it was because of the pronouncement of the Tzadok Rav Yitzchak, the Baal Shem, of Rav Yitzchak. The Baal Shem thereupon wrought a remarkable feat by means of a Kabbalistic combination of the words of the prayer, Orna Bakoach, as a result of the Baal Shem Tov's feet, the Baal Shem confronted Rav Yitzhak, and he said, why has your honor taken from me the power of my amulets, amulets that I dispense to help the people? Said Rav Yitzhak, it is forbidden to make personal use of the holy names. 
But there are no oaths nor any names in my amulet, said the Besht, save my very own, Israel, son of Sarah, Baal Shem Tov. Rabbi Yitzchak, unwilling to believe this, said that it was not possible for the Baal Shem's name alone to possess such awesome powers. Upon opening several amulets that were brought to him, he became convinced of the truth of what he was told, and then he uttered the following. Lord of the universe, if a man earns his living through the powers of his own name, what business is it of mine? Right? So that is say, he was a magician, and that uh, you shouldn't think badly of him. Life was very precarious. As I've said before, medicine didn't exist in the modern sense. Birth especially was a terribly anxious time. Young children died in very large numbers. You know, we don't give, uh, we don't say Kaddish for young children who die because it was so common. So the fact is that uh, the Baal Shem Tov went around and he started to act as a wonder worker and among many other wonder workers. There were people who did this who made a living. But in addition, the Baal Shem Tov seems to have had a special kind of charismatic power, started to attract people not only with his magic but with his person, and he started to emphasize a certain kind of keeping of Jewish life, a certain kind of reconstitution of Jewish community. Now, let me talk a little bit about that. First of all, let me say the following, and we'll come back to talk about these issues in detail. What makes Hasidism such a powerful, really powerful movement is that it answers all the problems. First of all, it returns to mysticism, but with a twist. It reestablishes Messianism in an appropriate way, but with a twist. And it responds to antinomianism, but with a twist. And finally, it has the charismatic leader, which is very, very central, but with a twist. Okay? So this is all with, by a twist. I mean, he doesn't just take something traditional and use it. He takes it and he sort of reorients it in a certain way to meet the conditions that he's trying to face. Now, first of all, with regard to mysticism, there is no doubt that the Baal Shem Tov believed in the theory of Lurianic Kabbalah. And if you read, there are two kinds of Hasidic literature. There is what's called theoretical literature and tale literature. Even the tale literature in the original, not in the Buber version, but in the original is full of material from Lurianic Kabbalah. But what the Baal Shem Tov did is the following. He said, Lurianic Kabbalah is the truth. That it's the truth. But it's so esoteric, it's so theoretical, it's so complicated that the deep secrets are meant only for the elites, for the tzaddikim, for the elites. For the ordinary person, the secrets are not necessary. They don't have to know all the great secrets of how their intentions have to rise up to heaven and be associated with some of the heavenly spherot. That's not necessary. All the average Jew needs to know is a simple thing. If they will keep the law in the right spirit, they will do their job. So the Lorianic theory remained intact, but the doctrine, the details were for the leadership. The average person only had to know simple things. If the person did the law, that was sufficient. Secondly, with regard to the law, you can see right away what the Baal Shem Tom did. He said, in answer to Shabbatite's fees, perverse antinomianism, we reestablish the law. Jews have to keep the law. The Torah and the Halacha is binding. But again, with a twist. What was the twist? 
You don't have to be a Talmud Chacham to keep the law. You don't have to put all of your energy first into study of the Torah. You don't have to devote yourself to learn all the minutiae of the Shulchan Aruch before you keep kosher or go to the mikvah or have a seder. Instead, the twist that he made was to emphasize that God wants the heart. You know, in all religious life, there are always moments called reformations, right? Reformations. You all know the Catholic Reformation, the, the Protestant Reformation. What was the Protestant Reformation? The Protestant Reformation was, whatever else it was, it was Luther saying to the Catholic authorities, remember there were the Renaissance authorities who were building St. Peter's and were worried about worldly gain and money and all the sensual things that were going on in, in Rome at the time. He was saying, you'd lost your way. God doesn't care about St. Peter's. And he doesn't care about indulgences. Remember the sale of indulgences? If you bought, you gave so much money to the church, you got so many years off from hell, and gave more money, you got so many years off. And there was a man named Tetzel who went around selling these indulgences. Luther said, oh, that's Narishkite. God doesn't want indulgences. He wants you to be sincere in your religion. He wants you to be an authentic Christian, to believe in God's grace, to acknowledge your sinfulness. This is what God wants. Now, in Judaism, we don't have indulgences, but we have... Reformations. For example, in the Middle Ages, there's a famous book by a man named Bachia ibn Pakuda. Do any of you know the name of it? What's the name of it? Yofi, Chovot Halivavot, Duties of the Heart. Duties, you see, when you have a good education as a young man, that's like the Pirkavot says, if you write it on clean paper as a young man, you don't forget. And so I'm sure he hasn't heard of Chovot Halivavot in a long time, but he remembered. Chavot Halivavot, Duties of the Heart, by Bachia ibn Pakuda. What is that? That's a book that says, that says, don't be a rationalist, don't be a Mamanadean, don't be, you know, concerned with all the minutiae, that religion is a duty of the heart. Chavot Halivavot, Duties of the Heart. And always in the history of religion, that's the dialectic, goes back and forth. It's kind of, you might say, rationalism, intellectualism, details, and then those who emphasize the simple virtues. Now, what the Baal Shem Tov emphasized was that God wants the Jewish people to have simple virtues, the simple virtue of prayer, the simple virtue of keeping the mitzvot. The fact is that uh, the emphasis now became keeping the law, but keeping the law with the right spirit. Now, that's important, and it's connected to another fact I'll come back to, which is the social chaos in the community, which I mentioned last time. But he emphasized that the simple person shouldn't feel disenfranchised. You see, if you feel, in, say if you're in a, in a Vilna-like environment, right, an environment for the Misnagdim, where everybody is very, very knowledgeable or emphasizes knowledge, they make you sugar with details. So for example, you have to say Shema at a certain time in the morning. If you get there two minutes late, you're in trouble. And then if you don't do the mitzvah this way, you have to do it again, and you're in trouble. I'll tell you, I get in so much trouble with my children, because every week they come home with a new mishigas, you know, in the, in the modern Orthodox world. Every week it's a new mishigas. So uh, my daughter came home from Israel, actually, after a couple of years in Israel, before she went to Columbia, and the Rebbe there was very nice. He said to her, you know, you have to be kind to your parents. Even if they're not so dati, if they don't do the right thing, you should be understanding. So she's very kind to us. But the fact is, the fact... Yeah, you know, they're very, they're very nice to us, my son-in-law, and they, they humor us. So the fact is that Hasidism 
emphasize this idea of the spiritual side, the caring, the live a vote, the heart. And so, for example, simple people. Remember, most of the Jews of Eastern Europe were simple people, and they were even more simple in the 18th century than before because of the chaos of the Kulnitska massacres, the chaos of Sabbateanism, the chaos of Frankism, all of the chaos. And therefore, they could come back and not feel inferior, not feel that their service, their avodah was going to be diminished. The God was going to say to him, you didn't do it exactly like they do it in Vilna. You know? So the fact is, it was a time. And you see this in the wonderful stories of the Hasidim that always talk about the spiritual side, what I would call the spiritual element. For example, uh, of the young boy, a story I particularly like, whose father's not very uh, happy with him. He's, a, he's not a star student. Uh, he's maybe not gifted. You know, when I go around, and I often lecture around the country, I always hear about children who've gone to Harvard. <laughs> I, I can tell you, it seems to me I have the whole freshman class, I know the parents. Everybody tells me about their children at Harvard. Sometimes they're even proud of children who go to Princeton. Not so proud, but they're proud. But, but the fact is, if they go somewhere else, you know, they go to local community college, you don't hear about them. So the fact is that father has a son like that. He goes to the community college. He's embarrassed. He doesn't want to take him to Shul Yom Kippur. But his mother says, mother says, Nushane, take him. He's your son. He takes him to Shul. Time for davening begins. You know, you say called Nidra about 20 minutes early because you can't avail, uh, cancel a vow on Yom Kippur because Yom Kippur is Shabbat, right? Define the Shabbat, so you can't annul a vow. So you say Kol Nidra three times before the sun goes down, so it's the day before. So the people are waiting for the Besh to daven. He's ready to leave the service and he can't start. And this time comes and they look, you know, from Yidden, they look and nothing happens, he doesn't start. Some more time goes by, and they can't understand it. Yom Kippur, what's happening? Finally, this little boy is so overwhelmed by the anxiety, by the emotion of the time, that he whistles. Now, you know Jews don't whistle. That's considered prust. Goyim whistle. Jews don't whistle. So the boy whistles. He does something un unthinkable in a shul. But all of a sudden, the Baal Shem Tov bangs the bimah, and he starts the tefillah. Afterwards, they say to the Baal Shem Tov, what is all this going on? What's it about? He says... I saw in my vision that in the world above, Satan had gathered all the sins of Israel and put them at the gates of prayer. And the sins of Israel were so dense, so numerous, so quantifiably heavy, my prayers could not have entered. But the purity of the boy's whistle was such that it pierced through the sins and then the doors to heaven, the prayers of heaven were open. Now that, you see, you have to understand the prayers. There are a lot of people who say, Ah, you see, the important thing is to whistle. The, but it's, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, but to whistle in shul on Yom Kippur in anticipation of the tefillah. In other words, what you have to do is you have to bring together in this reformation, this spiritual reformation, a reorientation of the psychic dimension, of the emotional dimension, of the spiritual dimension, but it has to be within a nomistic frame. It ha can't be... I feel Jewish, that's enough. I'm emotionally committed or whatever. You know, you always have in Jewish life people who are cardiac Jews. They feel Jewish in their heart, right? And revolving door Jews, they come on Rosh Hashanah, they leave on Yom Kippur. We have all versions. But cardiac Judaism is not sufficient. Cardiac Judaism is no better than Sabbateanism. It doesn't keep the law. The law is the essential thing. 
But you have to make it possible for people to keep the law. You have to bring them in. You have to tell them that their avoda is worthwhile, that God cares, that law listens. And that's what the Baal Shem Tov did. He had a way of reorienting these phenomena. Now, if he reoriented mysticism and he reoriented what I'll call the law and halakha, he also, and this becomes the defining quality of uh, Hasidism, he defined, redefines messianism and charismatic leadership. You all know that if uh, you come close to Hasidism, the thing that immediately jumps out at you as the defining feature of the movement is the leadership of the movement, what is called a tzaddik. Tzaddik means a righteous one, but in this case it means a charismatic leader, a rebbe. A rebbe is not a rabbi. A rabbi is someone who has lots of Jewish learning. You might say a PhD in Jewish learning, and the primary function of a, about a traditional rabbi is to give answers to religious questions, right? So you come to the rabbi and you ask him she'elot questions. You bring him the chicken. You say, is it a kosher chicken? He says, do you have another chicken? You say, no. He says, it's kosher. You say, I have another chicken? He says, it's so treif. So that's what the rabbi does. He answers questions. But his job is an academic, intellectual job. He's meant to be the Talmud Chachem. Now, here I go to the social for a moment. Remember I told you that one of the things that was catastrophic was the Chmelnitzka massacres and the pogroms that carried on. Now, pogroms and massacres undermine the stability of a Jewish community. To produce scholars, to produce a traditional Jewish community takes a long time. Right, you have here a Tarbut school. So a kid starts at five years old. One day I was here, I guess nine o'clock in the morning, I looked out the window, I saw even preschool children running around outside. Right, so you have to start when they're little. So you all have children or grandchildren, you know you start early, you teach them three years old, you start to teach them Torah, five years old, you teach them Mishnah, seven years old, you teach them Gemara, right? That's, that's what you have to do. So by nine or 10, at least, at least they'll know the, the Chumash by heart. So the fact is, the uh, education is a long, slow process of maturation. And to produce a Talmud Chachem, to go sit in the yeshiva for years and years and years to master Shas, uh, the Talmudic literature, the response of the Rishonim, the Achronim, this is a very long and slow process. In a period of social chaos, it's very hard to produce that leadership because people are running for their lives. There's always the violations of, of the community by the pogromchiks, by the violence. Now that means that the traditional rabbinic leadership was really in many places inaccessible. And on top of it being inaccessible, to some considerable degree, amazingly, some of the rabbinic leadership that there was had become Sabbatean and Frankist. Like I told you in Salonika, the third wife, uh, the fourth wife of the, of the Shabtai Tzvi was the daughter of one of the chief rabbis of Salonika, whose brother led the conversionary effort in 1683. Now, that means that a Jewish community has to rethink itself. You need community, but how can you have community if you don't have rabbinic leadership in a traditional form? Traditionally, the Jewish community is very pyramidal. They're at the top of the very wealthy and the rabbis, and then down to the base, which is the mass of, of the people. And the mass of the people are happy that the community is in good hands because they trust that the rabbinic leadership in alliance with the wealthy are running the community appropriately to their interest and also for the interests of heaven, right? Because the rabbi is at the top of the pyramid. But now it's very hard to have a pyramidal kind of thing. You don't have the leisure. 
So instead, the Baal Shem Tov creates a community. It's very interesting. If you look at the people who come or drawn to him and who hold important positions in the early Hasidic movement, many of them are what we would call margin, not marginal is the wrong word, They're not the central players in the Jewish community, not rabbis. He draws shechtim, he draws people who make circumcision, miles. he draws school teachers, he draws people to, his, to him, people from the margins of the traditional pyramid. And then he broadens it. And so if you want to understand the Hasidic community, you should think of it not as a pyramid, but something like a wheel. At the center of the wheel is the hub, that's the Rebbe. And then spreading out, Everybody has access to him equally are the spokes, right? So everybody has access to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe is down in the pits working with the, with the, uh, the, with Amcha, with the people. Unlike, say, the Vilna Gaon, who never went out of his house, right? Never went out of his study. Never, he taught only a very small elite, and he thought that that was sufficient, and they would go teach and so on. You'd have trickled down uh, in, the, in the Vilna community. Now, this social... Readjustment is important because the social readjustment works and has its uh, stick to the fact that it's held together by the phenomenon of the Rebbe, the Tzaddik. The Tzaddik does two things, and it's really important you understand this. He is the power that reconstitutes, and I'll explain how he does this, the messianic power, and he is a reconstituted form of leadership charismatic leadership. You see, what had happened is from Luria to Shabtai Tzvi to Jacob Frank, 200 years almost, the Jewish world had, especially in Eastern Europe, had gotten used to the idea of leadership that was charismatic, not just erudite. Charismatic is a Greek word that means a gift of God. In America, we use it very casually, right? Someone goes on television, and we say they're charismatic. Bill Clinton is charismatic. Uh, I don't know who else would be. Schwarzenegger, if you like him, I guess would be charismatic. Whoever you like, the word it means sort of popular or photogenic in our culture. Traditionally, charisma is a term for gift of God. God gives someone a special power, a special calling. Now, the Rebbe has that special power. He's chosen not because he's learned Right, I told you, the Baal Shem Tov is not the learned Talmud Chacham. He's chosen because God uses him in a special way. He treats him, gives him power in a special way. And that charismatic power then gives him altogether different roles than an ordinary rabbi. You would not go to an ordinary rabbi and ask him to make an amulet. Right? That's not the role of the rabbi. If you had problems with having children, say, in medieval times, no one would think of going to Maimonides and say... Please tell me some magic. I could have children. No one would go to Luria, uh, to Caro, uh, and, and say these things. The charismatic leader has a different function. He has powers. He has magical powers. He has mystical powers. He has powers in the world above that the ordinary person doesn't have. The traditional idea is that the tzaddik has an extra soul. We get a little bit of that on Shabbat when we come out of the mikveh and we have the neshama yaseira. Do all of you know about the neshama yaseira? Right? Anybody who doesn't know that? Okay. That means that on Friday afternoon when you come out of the mikveh, the mystical tradition is God gives you extra soul power to perform the rituals of Shabbat. And then you lose that soul power on Saturday night. That's why you, part of the ritual of Havadalah is the spices, because you're about to faint when you lose your soul, smell the, the, for some of them, it refreshes you, right? 
It's like, I don't know, maybe some of you remember if you were brought up in a traditional community in Yom Kippur, people always used to go around Yom Kippur with smelling salts because you were always faint. They schmeck, schmeck, right? That, so the fact is that the charismatic leader, the tzaddik now, is again at the center. The people need a charismatic leader. They're used now. They demand. They want someone who has special powers, like the pseudo-Messiah claimed, like Frank claimed, like Luria claimed. Charismatic powers. But those charismatic powers have to be within limits. So what the Baal Shem Tov does, what Hassan does is very interesting. It takes the charismatic leader again as the central phenomenon, the charismatic leader. But it limits it. It controls it in certain ways. The way it works is the people who believe in the charismatic leader empower him through their belief. They energize him through their commitment. This is not a messianic, right? This is not that he's, he's an interloper like Jesus. He's not an intermediary in that sense, but they empower him by giving him their confidence. They empower him. The second thing is they support his mission financially because he has to do things in the upper world. He can't be busy uh, making a living in the lower world. On the other hand, he promises those who are faithful to him three things. He promises them bonim, children, boys especially. Secondly, he promises them a livelihood, that he'll help them with worldly uh, success. And thirdly, that he'll help them, and I want to stress, not to substitute for them, right? There's not a Christological substitution. He assists them in their efforts. In other words, they have to make the effort. He can't do the mitzvah for the chassid. Say the mitzvah is, uh, I don't know, a simple mitzvah, lighting Shabbos candles for the woman and putting on tefillin for the man. I cite those because that's what Lubavitch do, right? They always go out and look for boys to put on tefillin, and women, they give them Shabbos candles. The Rebbe can't light the candles for the woman and put on the tefillin for the boy. But if you will do your job, even if you don't have the spiritual power and energy to make it completely efficacious in bringing unifications in the world above, Allah, Luriana Kabbalah, which we talked about, the Rebbe will help you so that your actions will be efficacious. What he does is he lifts the effort, he makes the effort whole. And what he does from his side is he opens the channels from above to below that are broken, he brings the blessing, the shefa, from above to below. And therefore, this reciprocity of the Hasidim empowering the tzaddik and the tzaddik empowering the, the Hasidim is the kind of reciprocity that is at the heart of the Hasidic community. And through that uh, interaction, they unify the world together, right? The Rebbe can't do it by himself because he can't lift the sparks that his Hasidim have to be energetic in. And they can't do it because they're not charismatic in the tech sense. They don't have all the power, so they need his help. But between them, they create enough power to bring things to a good end. Now, you see, these are three things we've talked about. First of all, the, the mystical, the antinomian, the charismatic. The last thing I want to talk about for a minute before I talk about how this moved out into the world is the doctrine of the Messiah. The doctrine of the Messiah is essential to Hasidism, essential, as it's essential to all traditional Jewish forms of life. But the problem was that it had become deeply dangerous. Right after 200 years of wanting an urgent 
desire for the Messiah out of the Lurianic uh, thesis and out of the response to the expulsion from Spain. And then the intensity that erupted in the pseudo-Messiah Shabtai Tzvi, and then in the catastrophe of Frankism, you need Messianism, but if you're going to get close to it, you're afraid you're going to get more Frankism. Who wants more Frankism? Who wants more Sabbateanism? Who wants more perversion? So the Jewish world was caught in a very difficult place. You couldn't give it up, because if you give it up, you're stuck, right? There's no reason to go on. If there's no Messianic future, there's no hope. Then why be Jewish? The whole thing is at an end. On the other hand, if you don't treat it with great care, if you get too close to the flame, you might have another eruption like Sabbateanism. So it's very dangerous. So the Hasidim had a brilliant solution. I must say it was really, it's quite a, and they worked it out kind of intuitively, but a brilliant solution to the problem. They said the following, Messianism, of course, is essential. And the messianic power, the messianic redemption is real. And there's something about the mission of the Baal Shem Tov that is deeply connected to the messianic fulfillment. Okay, that's a principle of Hasidism. There's something about Hasidism that is essential to messianic fulfillment. In his letter that the Baal Shem Tov wrote to his brother, Ogashen of Kuti, which appeared in the first Hasidic book. The first Hasidic book was written by the Baal Shem Tov secretary called Rav Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy, and he wrote a book called Toldot Yaakov Yosef. In the appendix to the Toldot Yaakov Yosef, he published the following letter that the Baal Shem Tov had sent to his brother-in-law. I, the Baal Shem Tov, and he, this is about an Aliyah Neshama. He went to heaven, he tells us, on, Yom, on Rosh Hashanah, the Baal Shem Tov saying, I went to heaven on Rosh Hashanah and I met the Messiah. And this is what he told me. Okay, so this is a letter from the Baal Shem Tov. I, the Baal Shem Tov, asked the Messiah, when will you come? And he answered, you will know the time as it is when your doctrine will be revealed in public and we will be disclosed in the world and your fountains will well outside with what I have taught you and you apprehended. And they also, that is to say the people of Israel, will be able to perform the unifications, meaning tikkunim, unifications, right? Glorianic unifications. And the ascents of the soul as you do. In other words, we'll all have the mystical power to go to the world above through our meditation, through our tefillah, through our devotion. And then the shells will be abolished. Remember the Lorianic doctrine, everything is caught in a shell, so you have the klipah, which holds the pearl, the pearl in the sea, right? That's why when we make Abdullah, what do we do? We put the light, we hold our hands like this, so the light goes on our fingernails, which are a symbol of the shells of evil. And it will be abolished, and then there will be a time of goodwill and redemption. Then there will be a time. In other words, when your doctrine becomes universal, there'll be a messianism. And I was surprised by this answer, and I was deeply sorrowful because of the length of time before which, before which this will be possible. However, from what I have learned there, the three things that are remedies and three divine names are easy to learn and to explain. But the Baal Shem Tov knew it would be a long time, but in the meanwhile, he had to take solace from the fact that there'd be some help. Then my mind was calmed, and I thought that it possible for my contemporaries to attain this degree and aspect of practice as I do, namely to be able to accomplish the ascents of the soul, to be able to study and become like me. Now, what does that tell you? On the one hand, the Baal Shem Tov says, 
the, circulates this letter which says, Messianism is connected to his teaching. On the other hand, it says it's not happening tomorrow, right? So if it's not happening tomorrow, what have you done? You take out the danger. You don't have that imminent messianic expectation. Tomorrow, tomorrow, and if it doesn't happen tomorrow. So what did the Hasidim do? They did something very remarkable, very brilliant. They s constructed a thesis that went something like this. The messianic power, okay, the messianic power resides in all of Hasidism. That means the entire community of Hasidism represents the messianic community. The power, per se, of the Messiah is incarnated, in particular, in the tzaddikim, the leaders of the movement, the leaders of the movement. Each of the tzaddikim is a mini-messiah. I want to stress, a mini-messiah for his Hasidim. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe is a mini-messiah for his Hasidim. And in a way, he is for them the messianic, because what he does is he provides for them worldly parnasa, and he provides family life, and he provides spiritual help, so their life is really improved. The Belzer Rebbe provides for his disciples, the Munkasher Rebbe for his disciples, the Slonim Chassidim for his disciples, the Satma Chassidim for his disciples, right? But the fact is, none of them, none of them are the Messiah. Now, let's just for a simple figure say there are 100 Sadiqim, 100 groups. Each one is 1%. So that each one has a messianic impulse, charismatic power, does wonderful things for his disciples. But he can't say, I'm the Messiah, because 99% of it is with the other 99. It's only if all the tzaddikim would get together and agree that you would bring the Messiah. And of course, if 100 tzaddikim could agree, it would really be the Messiah. So... The fact is, you see this in a very famous incident. The best book Buber ever wrote about Hasidic things, the most authentic, is a book called Gog or Magog in Hebrew. And in English, it's called for the... What? No, no, no. Eindau's 1923. It's a German philosophical book. The book was written in 1944, I think, and it's called Gog and Magog in Hebrew. And in English, it was translated as For the Sake of Heaven. I'm pretty sure is the title. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's a very nice read. I know a lot of you probably read Milton Steinberg's As a Driven Leaf. That's a book everybody seems to know in the Jewish community, and with good reason. It's a beautiful book about Alicia Benabuya. Everybody should know Gog and Magog because it's a similar genre. That is, a, it's written for the public, but it teaches you something very interesting about Jewish life. And in it, he takes a true incident. In the Napoleonic years, the years of Napoleon, remember Napoleon goes to Russia. And wherever Napoleon goes, the ghetto walls come down. Napoleon was a great liberator of the Jewish people, though he didn't like Jews. But he was a son of the Enlightenment in one sense. So he liberates the Jews everywhere. And it has good and bad consequences. The, one of the bad consequences is he liberates the Jews of Germany, and thereafter Jews in, are always associated with Napoleon in Germany, and they hate Napoleon, so they hate Jews. Right? So it's a comp these are complicated issues. Now, the fact is that in 1815, when Napoleon came to Russia, the tzaddikim would divide it among themselves whether it was good or bad. So, for example, Shnei Zalman of Vladi, the father of Lubavitch, was opposed to Napoleon because he thought if we're liberated, we'll become Goyim and it won't be a good thing. He wanted the Jews to stay in the ghetto and be, be pressured to keep the law. Others said, you know, this is a messianic moment. So they all got together, a whole group of Hasidim, it's a historical fact, got together and said, when is the time of redemption? Pesach. 
right? Pesach is the time of redemption. We'll all do the Seder the same way with special mystical devotion, special time, and we'll do it all, all of us together, and that will bring the Messiah. And they tried, but then it didn't work. Obviously, the Messiah didn't come. The world didn't end in 1815. And then for 100 years, there's a literature in Hasidism, what went wrong? And then there's an explanation. So-and-so was sick, and he, he was late, uh, you know, starting. Uh, the, the Chazanit came in 10 minutes late, and it was, you know. So there were all kinds of things that, that destroyed the, the harmony. But the fact is that the phenomenon of the Hasidim was that only all of them working together. And that means that on the one hand, Hasidism has enormous energy because it has messianic energy. When you see these young people in Lubavitch give up their life, right? So you go to Shanghai, you go to Beijing. There are no Jews in Beijing. There's a young couple, there were young children. Those children have no friends. The wife has to make bread. She has to buy everything in the market with a Chinese servant. She's there for life. I was in... in uh, Vilna, so there's now a Chabad in Vilna, I said to, from Boston, I, and I was father, I said to him, how, how long have you been? He said, I've served, I think, eight years of my sentence, is the way he put it, right? These are, this is a demanding, they leave, they stay their whole life in these strange places, in Alaska, in Vilna, in China, in, in uh, Thailand, I mean, these are very strange places, but they're energized that they're doing God's work, messianism, they're really bringing the Messiah and lifting the sparks of holiness in all these strange places. In all these places, there are sparks of holiness that need to be lifted. On the other hand, the messianic danger is averted, that is a pseudo-messianism, because you need to act, all of them, collectively. Now, when that breaks down, you get difficulty. The first great breakdown was with Nachman of Bratzlov, the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And to this day, there are people who believe Nachman of Bratzlov is the Rebbe. Friday night, I had a very interesting experience. Probably only in Orange County could I have such an experience. I had dinner with a Reconstructionist, and I benched with a uh, Bratzlov Chassid. The people I was staying with had a Bratzlov Chassid who teaches in the Tarput School, a very nice person, by the way. So educated at the University of Chicago, uh, who became a Balchuva, became a Bratzel a very interesting person. Uh, but they believe that the Rebbe is the Rebbe. He's the Mashiach. And today in Israel, you know, the largest Messianic group is Bratzlov. And if you want to know why the Ukrainian economy doesn't collapse completely, it's because every Rosh Hashanah, all the Bratzlov Hasidim go to pray at the grave in Uman of the Bratzlov Rebbe. In our time, we have again an outbreak, a very dangerous outbreak of, of messianism that claims to be inclusive, right? Lubavitch claims to be the messiah, the messianic. So it's a problem for, the, for other Hasidim, and that's why you have, remember they asked Rav Shach, the head of Panovich, they said, what religion is closest to Judaism? He said Lubavitch, <laughs> right? So, so the fact is... You know, the fact is that this is this, this great danger here that you mustn't underestimate because of the great influence that Chabad is taking over the Jewish world in many places. The influence of this pseudo-Messianism is an enormously significant thing, enormously significant in our time. But the fact is that this phenomenon is very interesting. Hasidism, in its essential character, was able, on the one hand, to keep the Messianic power of the flame going, right, that you're Messianic, you can do it. On the other hand, it controlled it by dividing it up into each of these tzaddikim and each of their communities. Now, what happened historically? How did this, uh, what I've described so far is really a theoretical kind of description. How did this come out into the world? In 1700, 
was the life of the best. He lived 60 years. He had a son, but he didn't think that his son had the, the gift to be a, uh, a, his successor. He said, you go into Schmatas, go do something else. So he became a Schmatta manufacturer. <laughs> and instead, his disciple, Ravdo Baird, known as the Maggot of Meserich, became his successor. Dove Bear was the leader of the movement from 1760 to 1772. In truth, Dove Bear was the creator of Hasidism as a movement. It was Dove Bear who attracted literally <coughs> hundreds and hundreds, bless you, of disciples. And these hundreds of disciples all came to study with the market in the city of Mezrich. He lived in the town of Mezvish. And then these disciples went back home. For a short time when he died in 1772, just for purposes of exactness, for a short time his disciple and colleague, or a colleague, Rav Eli Melech of Lozinsk, succeeded him. But it was impossible to keep the movement unified. The Rev, the Magad had had so many students, and they all went home. And when they went home, they brought Hasidism back to their communities. So it's the disciples of the, of the Magid who create the social phenomenon of Hasidism. So for example, the most famous is Shnei Zalman of Leadi. Shnei Zalman of Leadi, the, who's the father of the movement you all know as Chabad, Lubavitch, came from the town of Leadi. He went back and he starts Lubavitch. Other disciples like Rizhin, do all of you know the Rizhin dynasty? Do you have Tversky's out here? Are there any Tversky's? In, uh, and there's a very, very well-known Tversky who does, uh, writes books on uh, sort of yeah. Judaism and psychology and so on. Avram Tversky, the name Tversky, these are descendants of the Rizhina Rebbe. And uh, the Rizhina, the um, disciples of uh, Slonim, the disciples of Belts, all these people come from students of the Magid. Now what happened was they went out and they of course went back to their own towns. Now when they came back to their towns they did two things. On the one hand they started to preach the new way of Torah, the new way of keeping the community bound together, the new claims for the charismatic leader, the new ideas about messianism. And this had a profound, dramatic effect on a community that was in disarray. People were attracted to it. People were very much attracted to the charismatic leader. On the other hand, of course, you can imagine that this caused in many places colossal anger and bitterness because there was already a rabbi in town. So now this new fellow comes and he says, I'm the rabbi in town. So the old rabbi is not too happy. But all over Eastern Europe, essentially with the exception of Lithuania, where the Vilna Gaon's uh, circle saw in Hasidism uh, a new form of Sabbateanism, because they didn't look very closely, and they were so frightened by the old Sabbateanism that they didn't want to look very closely, and they put the Hasidim, and they excommunicated them, they put them in Cherem, the movement spread, and it spread dramatically, very dramatically. By about 1850, I would estimate that about half the Jews in Eastern Europe were of Hasidic connection. By Hasidic connection, I mean of all kinds. You know, there were people who were absolutely devoted to the Rebbe and lived near him, and like people in New York who lived near 770 to be by Lubavitch. And then there were people in circles, you know, like concentric circles going out. All of them had some relation to the Rebbe, 
trusted the Rebbe, sent money to the Rebbe, but had a more extended geographical and perhaps spiritual relationship. But the movement was enormously successful because it now reestablished the nomistic center, but with the new emphasis on the uh, spiritual, the emotional, the psychological, and it interpreted, reinterpreted many of the traditional phenomena in psychological terms, in educational terms, in pedagogical, uh, spiritual terms, and it took out, it sort of domesticated, if I can use that term, took out the danger in the messianic while keeping the messianic alive. But once this spread out in Eastern Europe, then the next century, that is say from the 1772, say, when the, the Magad dies, until about 1880, the center of Jewish life, of course, is Eastern Europe demographically. That's where there are millions and millions of Jews. About half of the Jews of that world are Hasidim. The other half are not Hasidim. They're called Mitnagdim, from the word Mitnaged, to oppose. These are the people who oppose Baal, uh, the Baal Shem and Hasidism. And so Eastern Europe was torn in a deep, fractured struggle between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. After about 1880, the shift uh, in Eastern European life brought a shift in this conflict. After about 1880, a new phenomenon came to be a very central part of Eastern European Jewish life, and that was, of course, Enlightenment, the Eastern, what we call the Eastern Enlightenment. The Haskalah that had begun in Germany in 1800, late 19th, 18th century, early 19th century, now became more and more common in Eastern Europe. As more and more Jews became enlightened, I mean, secular, critical of religion, and so on, the uniting of the Hasidim and the Misnagdim became essential because they now had a common enemy. So they broke down their opposition, more or less, though it continued in some way right to our own time, and they fought the, the Maskilim, the Enlightenment. So this is why Hasidism is historically so important. It was really a movement that, in some way, reestablished the foundations of Jewish life in Eastern Europe, gave it enormous power gave it enormous meaning, and above all, what it did, again, which is what uh, Lurianism, I think, was meant to do, it gave ordinary Jews a sense of Promethean power. That is to say, in a world that was desperate, after all, you, you know, people have this uh, romantic idea. You go see a Fiddler on the Roof, and we have this, this nostalgia for the, for the ghetto, for Eastern Europe. Uh, there's a woman who's trying to create a ghetto in Israel. I mean, as a historic, uh, and she's a very nice woman. I don't mean to criticize her, though. It's a very foolish idea. Uh, the fact is that the ghetto is a terrible place. You only have to read some of the memoirs about the ghettos. They were dirty and filthy, and poverty was enormous, and people couldn't make ends meet, and children were starving, and women were in terrible condition, white slavery, all kinds of terrible things in the ghetto. So we don't want to go back to the ghetto. But what happened there in that situation when people were so desperate, you ask yourself, why didn't they convert? Why didn't they become Christian? Why didn't they become secular? Why didn't they throw themselves into something else, right? They could have left. They could have, the church always would have accepted them. The, the Moskilum would have accepted them. Emigration to Western Europe, to America, why did they stay? And they stayed because they felt with the Rebbe they were Promethean creatures that they could really bring some kind of tikkunim, some kind of unification, some kind of redemption, and only they could do it. People who did not keep the law couldn't do it. Gentiles couldn't do it. They didn't have the power in their soul. They didn't have the Rebbe. Only they could do it. 
So what it did was it took this miserable, terrible life and it elevated it to an enormously rich and high spiritual dimension and it gave people enormous sense of empowerment. And that therefore allowed them to carry on in a world which was otherwise desperate, terribly impoverished, terribly destructive, terribly uh, threatening. And therefore Hasidism deserves a lot of credit for reestablishing the equilibrium of Eastern European Jewry and providing it with a spiritual center that was really vital and dynamic and that continued really till the Shoah. And if you look at the uh, history of the Hasidic dynasties, you'll see, of course, these, well, I put only a few lines. Over time, these lines divide and divide because the Rebbe will have two sons and three sons, right, grandchildren and so on. So you'll have hundreds and hundreds of Hasidic dynasties. Most of them were wiped out in the Shoah. I know that because I read it in the article in the Encyclopedia of Hasidism on the end of Hasidic dynasties, and I know the person who wrote that article, so it's uh, absolutely correct. And the fact is that uh, all of these Hasidic dynasties were wiped out, almost without exception. But until then, it was uh, the vital center of Eastern European Jewry, certainly till 1880, and even then down to the war. If you look at pictures, how many of you are from Warsaw? Any from Warsaw? Any Jews from Warsaw? Uh, you know, if you come from Warsaw, for example, and you talk to your, your parents or your grandparents, they're from, they'll tell you about the enormous Hasidic centers in, uh, for example, in Warsaw. So the, the stories were told that at Mincha time in Warsaw, you could never get a carriage because the Hasidim were all carriage drivers and they would all go for Mincha. So you couldn't get a carriage in, in Warsaw at Mincha time. But there's a really remarkable story, which is Hasidism. And uh, of course, now it's come to America and it's gone elsewhere, and I don't think anyone could have predicted the remarkable success that it's having, uh, especially in the form of Lubavitch, but not only Lubavitch, Satma, uh, which is not something we want to encourage, but Satma uh, is in very very numerous. I say we don't want to encourage it because it's anti-Israel, right? You all know it's anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, uh, but, uh, and Bratzlov in Eretz Israel. So this is a phenomenon you have to understand that's very much with us. And it's probably going to be with us until the coming of the Mashiach. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. Thank you very much.